0: Welcome to this week in California education, brought to you by EdSource Radio and our sponsors, the SD Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
1: And I'm John Fensterwald.
0: On November 3rd, Californians will have a chance to repeal the ban on affirmative action that voters imposed on California 24 years ago. It's called Prop
1: 16, as many of you who have cast your ballots already know. It's a pretty straightforward initiative, although its title really doesn't explain what it is. Let me read the title. Prop 16 allows diversity as a factor in public employment, education, and contracting decisions. Right now, if the polls are right, and who knows if they are, the initiative's in trouble.
0: In fact, John, as you wrote this week, only 37% of likely voters said they'd vote yes on the initiative. That was in the latest PPIC poll that came out. And uh, most worrisome to backers of the initiative, 50% said they would vote no. 12% were undecided, and everyone who wants to bring affirmative action back to California are looking to those undecided voters to overcome what appears to be strong resistance.
1: Well, maybe they'll be listening to our podcast, Louis, because this week we're going to focus on the initiative. Over the past quarter century, most of the focus of attention has been on the ban's impact on admissions at the University of California.
0: And actually, most of the attention has been on admissions at UC Berkeley and UCLA. Those are UC's most selective campuses. So today we're going to take a look at what restoring affirmative action might mean for K-12 schools and the California State University, the 23 campuses that serve almost a half million students, many more than at the University of California. We're also going to take a look at whether Supreme Court rulings over the past quarter century have weakened affirmative action as a tool to remedy racial, ethnic, and gender inequalities in our education
1: institutions. Let's start with K-12 schools. We're pleased to have on the line Alicia Smith Ariaga, who is Executive Director of the Education Trust West. Welcome Alicia.
2: Thanks so much for having me John.
1: So the potential impact of Prop 16 on K-12 schools has not received a lot of attention but you believe it could be significant. So let's start by talking about a couple areas which is to say how it might affect funding as well as teacher recruitment and retention. So the local control funding formula which funds most of the money for K 12 covers black students and a significant percentage of Latinos. They're covered as low income students. So, why and how would it work differently?
2: Well, we know that now, although the funding formula targets low income students, that the state's hands have really been tied behind our backs in terms of being able to target some of the lowest performing student groups. And so, there have been a lot of workarounds to try and really be able to target, for instance, Black students or Latinx students. And so having Prop 16 is going to be a really important tool to be able to target funds to the students who need it most, which now without Prop 16, we are really unable to do that.
1: So would you focus, say, the lowest performing ethnic or racial group in a specific district? Or how do you think the law might change
2: So right now, for instance, Dr. Shirley Weber, in the last few legislative cycles, has tried to you know move forward some legislation that focuses on the lowest performing student groups. And we know, for instance, in California right now, that at the rate we're going, Latinx students won't all meet math and ELA standards until 2080, and Black students won't meet them until 2097. And we know that that's not due to any fault of the students. But if we have more resources, for instance, to target things like professional development to the teachers who are most in contact with those students, to really infusing curriculum with things that students need to be able to meet standards, we could really change those numbers, both at the district level and at the state level. And right now, in its current iteration, the funding formula doesn't allow us to do that. But Prop 16 could really open doors. To make that a possibility,
1: it wouldn't be just state funding. It would enable local districts through their planning process, the local control accountability plan, and then they could actually do those kinds of things locally, I'm assuming.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, what we hear too from a lot of districts are things like, you know, they really be interested, in, for instance, in diversifying their workforce and making sure that their workforce more clearly reflects their student population. And right now there's a lot of misinformation because of Prop 209 and folks are often scared or unclear about how they can start those programs or what it would look like to target, for instance, Black or Latinx students to become future teachers. And what Prop 16 does is just give folks a tool to be able to really try and set up some of those programs and think creatively about how not only we fund schools, but how we increase the diversity of the workforce in schools as well.
1: So under Governors Newsom and Brown, we had extensive funding for bringing teachers into low-income schools. Why wasn't that sufficient to deal with the issue of quality teachers teaching Black and Latino students?
2: Well, we know we have huge teacher shortage issues in the state, and especially in subjects where we're doing worse. So for instance, in math, um, which is an area where we have some of the highest shortages, we see that we have some of the most problematic scores. And we know that in subjects like mathematics and some of the STEM fields, we can't ignore how racism and bias shows up in the classroom. And we know from research that having access to teachers of color really helps increase the probability not only for students of color, to go to college but for all students just in terms of them being exposed to all different kinds of individuals and so having the tool to really be able to target resources towards not only increasing the number of teachers but also retaining teachers of color is really important and something that Prop 16 could allow us to do.
0: We're talking with Alicia Smith Ariaga, she's executive director of Ed Trust West. You've mentioned several areas where you think Prop 16 could make a difference on the K-12 level and so much of the tension around affirmative action has been on admissions at the university at the college level that obviously isn't an issue in k-12 but are there any other areas where you think eliminating this ban on affirmative action could make a difference on the k-12 level
2: having affirmative action as a tool as well for access to high quality coursework and advanced coursework for students of color would be a really helpful tool Um, We know that, for instance, the number of students of color taking AP courses and advanced courses is well below um, the proportion of students representation in the state and being able to have some targeted programs to ensure that students are not only aware of these programs, but that they can access that coursework. Um, would be another really important piece on the K twelve side as well.
1: Let me just clarify that because all of the testing identifies scores by various subgroups and ethnicities, including you know African American kids and Latino. And if there are low performance by those groups, the district is supposed to address them. And couldn't they do exactly what we're talking about as that reason to do it? Because the state requires addressing poor performance by subgroups.
2: One would think that's the case, but what is bared out both in the results that we've seen is is that that's just not happening. And so because of that, we just need a much clearer tool to make sure that those students are really getting access to the resources they deserve.
1: We've been speaking with Alicia Smith-Ariaga, who is the Executive Director of the Education Trust West. Thank you for joining us and enlightening us about K-12, which is not often talked about when Prop 209 comes up. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, we're now gonna take a look at the California State
0: University or CSU as it's known in California. We're going to be talking with Lolo Hong. She is Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs and Enrollment Management at CSU. Welcome.
3: Good morning, Louis.
0: So let me ask you, I think for those of us and many parents and students who have been through the admissions process at CSU, admissions is pretty much based on your grades in high school and your test scores on the SAT or ACT. So would eliminating the ban on affirmative action have an impact on CSU?
3: Lewis, I think the first thing I want to emphasize is regardless of what happens in November's vote, the CSU is going to remain very much committed to continuing to embrace our goals and mission in support of diversity, equity, and inclusion. The current approach that we have for admissions would not be directly impacted by any change. To Prop 209, you are correct that we have historically relied on GPA and standardized test scores to create what's called the Eligibility Index. That has changed in the current context with COVID-19, and we will, for fall 2021 admission for the first time, not incorporate the standardized test score. So we will be experimenting and innovating to see whether or not we believe it will benefit students to adopt a different approach to admissions.
0: Pre-Prop 209, CSU did have and does have this EOP, Education Opportunity Program, which was targeted and is targeted as those students who need the most support or could benefit from the most support, often students who are African-American or Latino or many other backgrounds. So how would passage of Prop 16 affect that program?
3: So, Louis, you're absolutely right. The Educational Opportunity Program for over 50 years has been an important initiative across all of our CSU campuses. And before Prop 209, in considering who could be participating in EOP, we did consider race. And after Prop 209, the program pivoted. So we adopted uh, proxy indicators that included things like income or a parent's educational status if the student was a first-generation student. And those are good proxies, but they're imperfect proxies. So Prop 209 would allow us to once again consider options that were more race-conscious and also gender.
0: Okay. So what are some of the other areas where you think putting affirmative action back on the table could be beneficial?
3: I'm particularly interested in how we could reexamine both our enrollment practices, for example, in recruitment, but also our efforts to support students' success. One example I can offer is during my time at San Francisco State University, I worked there prior to coming to the chancellor's office. I had the opportunity to work with students, faculty, and staff to establish a new Black Unity Center. One of the challenges we experienced were individuals who wanted to, as private donors, offer funds to create scholarships that would be awarded specifically to African-American students so that they could attend San Francisco State University. We had to be very careful how those scholarships were crafted uh, while honoring the intent of those donors. A repeal of Prop 209 would allow us to consider how we could construct those scholarships more strategically to support access and success for black students.
0: I think one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that the ban on affirmative action didn't only apply to race and ethnicity, but also gender. And I know one of the things that the board of trustees mentioned, one of the things that could happen, for example, a student retention program focused on women in engineering that you couldn't really do under Prop 209 You could consider having a program focused on women to try to get them into engineering.
3: Absolutely. And I think another area we could consider that would be recruitment, hiring, and retention of our faculty. We know that to support student success uh, across race, ethnicity, and gender, that having representation in your faculty and staff that reflects the identities and experiences of your students can be a positive contributor to student success and a positive student experience.
0: Talking with Lolo Hong from uh, California State University, and I'm glad you mentioned the faculty diversity issue because again, I think this is something that doesn't get that much attention, but this is where there are huge imbalances. I mean, the, the student body is extraordinarily diverse Perhaps some groups are not represented to the same extent as they should be to match the high school graduating class. But the faculty, and they're outstanding faculty, but they're largely white faculty. And while there's been some progress, there's still a long way to go. So this is a key issue for the system.
3: Lewis, it is. And I do want to acknowledge that we have made a lot of progress and that on all 23 of the CSU campuses, there is an attention and acknowledgement that we have to ensure that our faculty and staff are representative. And so it's important to to distinguish between hiring and retention, because we can certainly do better on the hiring end and increase that pipeline. The challenge is also that we have to have robust retention programs as well to ensure that if we recruit a diverse faculty and hire a diverse faculty, that they will be able to stay. The repeal of Prop 209 will open the door for additional options to consider, and we will have to consider them carefully. But I do think that it creates this opportunity for us to more rigorously advance our goals around diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are very much part and essential to the CSU mission.
0: Well, on that note, we've been talking with Lolo Hong. She's Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs and Enrollment Management at CSU. Thanks for talking with us today, and I guess we'll see how all of this plays out on November 3rd.
3: We will, thank you, Lois.
0: To put this in a broader legal context, we're pleased to have with us Ralph Richard Banks. He's a professor at Stanford Law School, also faculty director of the Stanford Center for Racial Justice. And I asked him whether he thought that the Supreme Court's rulings over the last quarter century or so would limit affirmative action's usefulness in California.
4: It can still be a useful tool. It's also the case, though, that there are quite substantial restrictions on universities' attempts to use affirmative action in the admissions process. Some of those restrictions predate Prop 209. These were restrictions, for example, in the types of rationales that could be used as a justification for affirmative action. The Supreme Court decided as far back as the first major case in 1978, the Bakke case involving the University of California, that the only permissible rationale for affirmative action was diversity. In other words, the university could not use affirmative action to counter or offset societal discrimination. It couldn't use affirmative action to create role models for African-American students. It could not use affirmative action to remediate the harms that resulted from slavery or segregation. So that's one major restriction that is still standing. Diversity can be the only rationale. The other part of the test concerns Uh, what we call the narrow tailoring test. And that's how the programs are actually structured. And there as well, there are quite substantial restrictions. Those restrictions arose, in fact, after Bakke. They came more recently in the Supreme Court's decisions in 2003 in the University of Michigan cases, and even more importantly, more recently in the court's decisions in the University of Texas cases, the so-called Fisher litigation. And the question in the Fisher litigation was precisely what does the university have to prove in order to show that race-based affirmative action is necessary to promote educational diversity? And there, the court has given indications that it's going to require universities to prove more than would have been required previously to justify their affirmative action policies. There's the sense that the court is tightening the grip or restricting the permissibility of affirmative action policies, but it hasn't actually done so yet. So the concern for universities would really focus on the composition of the court. The composition of the court has changed and the court is clearly poised to tighten the strictures that is put in place.
0: But one of the things people are talking about in terms of affirmative action is not so much around admissions now. It was like at the California State University, they don't really have comprehensive review, but it's using it like if you want to target funds, do you were trying to attract more African-American students to the university or their or programs that, you know summer programs that would would get them focused on college, those kinds of things, which they felt they couldn't do before. Are those programs sort of permissible? Is that like in a whole different category? Have the courts ruled on those issues or is it part of the same discussion here?
4: You're correct that the core of the affirmative action controversy is admissions, but you might have lots of programs that take place before the admissions process. You could think of outreach programs, preparation programs, informational programs that inform students about the, the university. And those programs might take race into account in the way that they do that outreach or in the way they identify students. And those are likely to be held more permissible than the college admissions affirmative action policy, because a college admissions policy is one where some students are admitted and some students are left out. Whereas a program, for example, to improve awareness of the possibility of a college education, so forth, or or something like that, that's giving out more information to everyone.
1: Could you see it for K-12 with regard to funding, where you could say, because of segregation in housing and patterns of poverty, you wanted to target, say, African-American kids who are attending schools where they're really segregated and you want to provide more resources? Or can you point to studies that say, uh, black kids perform better when there are teachers that look like them, and it's really important for achievement to do that? Is that? Would those be permissible uses.
4: So the role model argument, the idea that black students need black teachers, that actually has been rejected by the Supreme Court. Uh, That argument, because it was rejected decades ago, it hasn't figured prominently in recent litigation, but it's unlikely it would succeed, right, if that argument were raised explicitly. But there are two other distinctions that are really important here. So one is a distinction between whether you're treating individuals differently on account of race, And if you have a promotion program, say, or an outreach program, you know, you might decide to go to African-American high schools and promote, you know, the University of California, say. And that, again, it's not treating individuals differently. You're making a decision based on the racial character of the school. So that seems a step or two away from the core prohibition. And then another distinction would be if you're relying on race or some factor other than race, So in the elementary school context, for example, you might say that we're going to have special programs or allocate special funds based on schools that have high poverty rates, or it could be based on schools that have a high percentage of students whose parents didn't go to college, or it could even be based on schools that are racially monolithic and that are segregated from opportunity in a way. And in all of those cases, your motivation, of course, might be to try to reach out to disadvantaged students who are African-American or Latino, say. But if you're not using race as the criterion, if you're using, for example, poverty, then that should be okay. That's constitutionally permissible. And that might have even been permissible under Prop 209, which only focuses on race, not all the other characteristics like poverty or whether you speak English as a first language or those sort of characteristics that are close to race, but not the same.
0: Well, what's clear is that even if voters on November 3rd overturn the ban on affirmative action, it's going to be still a bit of a minefield in terms of how this could be reintroduced and used in California.
4: It will indeed. I mean, it should be we should be clear. Well, it's not clear that the ballot initiative will pass. And even if the initiative does pass, it merely makes affirmative action policies permissible. It doesn't mandate them. And even if they're enacted, they do have to comply with the constitutional standards the Supreme Court has put forth, as well as any federal statutory standards. And those restrictions are quite substantial. They generally don't allow race-based targeting of programs that result in individuals being treated differently on account of race. And that's a pretty big barrier. So, you know, sometimes people lose sight of that. Well, thank you so
0: much for those uh, very key and important points. We've been talking with Ralph Richard Banks, professor at Stanford Law School. Thanks for talking with us today. And we'll see what happens on November 3rd.
4: This will be an interesting election.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. We can't conclude this podcast without hearing from the person who was the driving force behind the ban on affirmative action a quarter century ago, and that was Ward Connerly. He was a UC regent at the time, and the regents imposed a ban on affirmative action before asking voters to do so for the entire state. We caught up with Ward Connolly this week. He
0: was on his cell phone, so the sound wasn't great. He told us that he thinks the need for a ban on affirmative action is as acute as it was in 1996. I also asked him whether he felt that Supreme Court rulings have rendered affirmative action less effective than it would have been otherwise.
3: The court allowed diversity, which I
0: think was a colossal mistake, but they allowed diversity as a rationale for the use of race. And that to me was worse than any kind of a conclusion that I would have expected because it's saying that institutions such as K through 12 and higher education can discriminate against people on the basis of race and color using
3: race as one of many factors. Hell, race is never one of many factors. If you use space, it, it is the factor.
0: One other interesting thing is that Ward Connolly, as we noted, was the driving force behind Prop 209. And the same could be said of Howard Jarvis, who almost single handedly could claim credit for getting Prop 13 on the ballot. And what's going to happen in less than a couple of weeks is that California voters will have a chance to repeal a major portion of Prop 13. That's the split roll initiative that's on the ballot.
1: And also to reform Prop 209. I think it underscores how individuals like Connolly and Jarvis, both without any significant political base at the time, can have such a huge impact on California. They use the initiative process rather than going through the legislature and by correctly reading voter sentiment at that particular time.
0: Well, November 3rd will demonstrate whether their impact, now extending over many decades, will be diminished or continue unabated in the years to come. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Sources own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Finsterwald. And remember to get your votes in as early as possible so that we can get the results as soon as possible. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.